sit back, relax, and let's start the motherfucking beat. Get this message out here. I'm doing what I love to help a community out. Like, yeah, you know I mean, what is the next step? What's the one thing I can do today? That's gonna get us one. So, I mean, I don't know what's what's in the future. Art is the only way you can reach out to the future. It is the only thing that actually lives through a time capsule. And I think that if the DIY scene as a whole put more of a value on itself, it could be a lot more sustainable. Now, if someone doesn't like it, that's their deal. So a great way to start this episode is the fact that we are in a hotel, sitting in front of a balcony window looking at some gentlemen across the way from us, shirtless on their balcony doing the YMCA. That's true. And I'm enjoying it. In we fact, are... I'm unable to speak currently because I am <laughs> entranced. <laughs> they're, like, they're, not, they're not bad looking dudes. You know, you know they're in like, an objective, they're sexual reasonably way. Reasonably fit. Yeah. You know, short hair. They look like they could be uh, Jersey Shore extras. You think they do this professionally? The YMCA professionally? Yeah. Is yes. that a thing? Is there a market for that? There's a market for everything nowadays. Uh, is this like true human expression happening right now? Am I witnessing like the pinnacle of just the mind and its capabilities right now? I would like to say yes, but I think that you might also just be witnessing somebody trying to get YouTube views. Oh, yeah. Everything's dark and like <laughs> up all about the views now, isn't it? <laughs> it's a Can numbers game. Can I swear game. on your podcast? Absolutely. Okay, cool. Sorry, this is really hard to pay yeah. attention to. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm like... Like the bear just came out and... <laughs> uh, we're at MAGFest. Yeah, it's this chaotic. Is, <laughs> this is my second MAGFest episode. We, we recorded one in the car ride up here. Has your MAGFest been chaotic? Not really chaotic, but... Uh, to be expected. This is my fifth year, so I, I'm, oh, okay. I'm well aware of what I'm getting into at this point. Like, did you hear what happened to me last night? No. Tell so us. at 2.30 in the morning, somebody was like, hey, come down and hang over in the atrium by the fountain, which is fine. People do that, I guess. And so I went down, and I'm drinking vodka under a table in an atrium at 2.30 in the morning. And it's MAGFest. This guy, his name is Randy, and... He's like, oh, I just ordered 500 chicken nuggets from McDonald's. I saw that. I saw you posted that picture. Yes. Yeah. And they only delivered around 200 of them through Uber Eats. But there was like only six of us there. <laughs> and so there was like, and also the guy, Randy, that ordered them just left and didn't eat any. He left before <laughs> they even came. And like, all of a sudden we're like, there's 200 plus chicken nuggets right here. No sauce, by the way. No sauces. Even though the that receipt... Is savage. Oh, the receipt... Who the fuck does that? ...had some McDonald's who's pissed <laughs> at fucking two in the morning <laughs> yeah. that somebody just ordered 500 nuggets worth. Um, there's another picture of like 70 Frosties being made by somebody else. Like somebody else there. Or McFlurries. And my, yeah. yeah. Let's, Sorry. Let's, let's, let's not keep it brand the appropriate. food wars yeah, over Sorry. here. Yeah, so... Last night, I had about 40 McNuggets, felt pretty sick to my stomach, and <laughs> passed out in a food coma. Um, and I literally went back to my room, and there was people in there, and I was like, yo, if you just, like, walk down to the atrium and, like, ask about McNuggets, like... And they came back with, like, 30 McNuggets, and they're like, yo, you weren't lying. I thought you were full of shit, and, like... <laughs> Do you think it'll be top tonight? Well, so apparently they ordered 170 McNuggets the night before, and they felt the need to top themselves. Tonight. Okay. Well, I wonder. Yeah. I wonder if it'll keep going. I don't going. know. 
if they're going to do it again tomorrow or tonight. I'm sorry, but only time will tell. I, I guess I just wanted to put Magfest in perspective. <laughs> I, there... I couldn't tell if those were furry costumes. Uh, yeah, I think they're in costume. Is they moving? Are they moving? No, those have no, just been, that, those those have been just there. static furry characters. McFlurry on the top floor. Sorry, this is a terrible interview for people to listen to. No, it's all good. Yeah, it's all good. It's we, all right. It's good. I like to get it like kind of started and loosened up, and then I could start the conversation okay, cool. in an appropriate I'm almost going to like stop looking out the window. Yeah, it maybe is I'll like so, draw the blind. It is so distracting. I'm going to draw the blind. How like, about that? Thank you. All right. So now there's no more distractions. Yeah, I can't. For anybody that uh, doesn't know, I am sitting here with my friend, Dan, a.k.a. Danimal Cannon. Hi. And he is a musician and uh, all-around good human being. I don't know about that second one. but no, you're a pretty good let's dude. Let's go with that, yeah. I and, like it. Uh, you know, you make music under the moniker, stage name, Danimal Cannon. You I do, also yes. play in Arm Cannon. Yes, and you do, you know, composing for video games and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. We'll you... get into it in a moment, but I'm going to do my introduction first. Do it up, right. Hello and welcome to Start the Beat with Sykes. My name is Sykes and this is my podcast. Before we get started, I just wanted to take a quick moment to thank everyone who checked out last week's episode. If you're one of the people who listened to that conversation, I hope you enjoyed it. And thanks so much for coming back. But for those of you out there who are new to the show... Welcome. Please feel free to make yourselves at home. And as always, there's beer and soda in the fridge. Today, I am drinking a Southern Tier Citra Hot Live, and Dan has a Coors Banquet. Classing it the fuck up. It's got the cream-colored can. I love it. (laughs) I love it. I love that vintage look. Right? That shit will put hair on your body in places you don't want it. It's no silver bullet. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is the cream ale of... It's not a cream ale, but it's in a cream-colored can. So. Uh-huh. Are you much of a beer guy, Dan? Uh, casually, like, I can slum it with the best of them, but I can enjoy a delicious brew as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I think, you know, I didn't understand craft for a while and then i understood it too much and became like a bit of an unintentional snob it's and now an i just don't give hobby. a fuck oh yeah very expensive i still spend a lot of money on it but you got to spend it somewhere yeah i feel like uh <laughs> how much i like craft beer is directly proportional to how much free money i have fair enough it's it's good to have friends that are into craft beer Absolutely. <laughs> Just be cool and, you know, maybe you'll get a few free drinks out of it. Right. So, as I mentioned before, you are a musician. We are here at MAGFest, which is a music and gaming convention. You do a lot of video game related things. I've seen you perform here several times. You're not really performing this year, but you did do a short set yesterday. Yes. Uh, I guess we'll start the talk just with uh, how music and video games are connected to you and what you do personally as a uh, creative mind so uh i guess video games are connected to what i do in two separate ways uh one with my solo stuff um i write original music using a video game hardware and the way i do that is i use uh, homebrew software that sort of allows me to uh use the sound chips built into video game systems specifically old ones like the nintendo and the game boy and things like that and I can hijack that sound chip and use it to make music. And they're they're weird sounding, 
they have a lot of character, but they uh, they have a very original, iconic sound to them. Were you? I'm assuming you were probably writing and composing music pre. Uh, doing video game chip stuff like with LSDJ and things like that, right? Like, imagine you've been playing guitar for a, a chunk of your life. I've been playing guitar since I was 12. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and I'm uh, far above the age of 12 currently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. That's fine. Uh, uh, I, I don't really care about my age so much. Uh, I think I'm 34. I'd have to look that up, though. And... <laughs> So I've been playing. I've been playing music for a really long time. So what was like the discovery of uh, chiptune, for lack of a better word, for you? How was that? Like whenever you first came across it and deciding that you wanted to dive into it. Um, I don't know if I should back up and like talk about how I got into another place because so originally I discovered um, chiptune music at a festival called Penny Arcade Expo. Okay, which is in Seattle, and I was performing with this band called Metroid Metal that I also play in. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we would cover music from the game Metroid, and okay. we'd, we'd play it at this big game convention. And, you know, that was sort of my experience with game music at that point, was I like to cover it with real instruments. That makes sense. You know, yeah. I like to, like, oh, that crappy square wave sounds weird and crappy and dinky um i want to you know change it into a loud screaming electric guitar and big Mm -hmm. drums and things like that and that was my desire for a long time and then i went to the penny arcade expo in seattle in 2009 and i saw people performing with nintendo game boys and they were performing on the street and they were playing original music and they were plugged into this uh amplifier that was um like hot wired to a car battery and they were it was like the most punk thing i'd ever seen and they're having this crazy you know concert dance party in the street you know and there's like hundreds of people crowded around and it was amazing yeah. i'd never seen anything like it and it before that i wasn't aware that people were taking video game hardware and performing shows with them and not only that, that like it could sound crazy and fun. And yeah, totally. Actually, uh, the Game Boy can sound legitimately huge because mm-hmm. part of my desire was to sort of remix video game music into something that sounded big because I thought the melodies and the compositions were great, but it kind of sounded dinky on the NES and things like that. Once I found out that the Game Boy itself could sound huge, I was like, oh, well, why do we need to change the instrument? Like, we could just use the Game Boy. Totally. Yeah. And it had a very cool, iconic sound to it. And so I saw this super punk show going on, and, like, you can't help but, like, fall in love with that sort of thing. Definitely. And, like, I'm not a huge punk rock guy, like, but I definitely admire the spirit and the aesthetic and the honesty of it. And... So I was down. It's sort of like a really punk sect of electronic music. Yeah, and it's just like that that whole idea of, you know, uh, doing it yourself no matter what. Oh, yeah. Like, you know what? Fuck it. We're not part of this festival. We'll make ourselves part of this festival. Right. And then on the flip of that, how was discovering as far as like programming and writing music on chiptune for you? Was that like another thing that... Uh, interested you because i mean it's pretty it can be pretty complicated and oh for sure especially just diving in uh for as a beginner it's very intense so i imagine you're probably the kind of person that was like intrigued by that though oh absolutely uh i definitely had a head start in that since i had been covering video game music for a long time 
I'd kind of realized that a lot of old game composers had used some like weird musical tricks in order to get cooler sounds out of the sound chip. And so I was familiar with some of the tricks. So you can use two channels like in the, the song Snake Man in Mega Man 3 to create an echo sound, which in, you, you don't have access to like a delay pedal or an echo pedal oh, okay. or something like yeah. that. So you have to manually create the delay. Yeah, just in order so to, on two separate channels like offset on the right. on the sequence. Or I'd listen to like Solstice uh, by Tim Fallon and he used these crazy huge arpeggio sounds that nobody in the right mind would ever use on any sort of legitimate quote unquote instrument but he'd use like these four octave 64th note arpeggios you know to create these sounds i had never heard before and so i was kind of familiar with some of the really odd musical things that old game composers would do and so when i went to go start writing music on the game boy myself i was already hip to some of the advanced techniques. You were like aware of the capabilities of just figuring out how to do it. Right. And that's something I wasn't conscious for me. It was just sort of something I picked up along the way while I was learning how to play some old video game songs. And I imagine too, you probably grew up with video games and grew up liking music. So those melodies and weird sounds and crazy vibrato weird things that the, the sound chips do. You're like, I know that this is capable of making these sounds. I just need to figure out how to do it. Yeah, and it was like a test that I didn't know I was studying for. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden, like when the the light switch flipped, like, oh, you can play concerts with this, and it sounds awesome and huge. Like, I already had been studying for a test that I'd, I didn't know I'd have to take. Totally. That's a, a really cool way of looking at it. Happy accident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, I'm I was also very curious just growing up and over the course of time there have been things that I have realized I kind of knew all along or was just hip to just from being a curious weirdo loner kid that was always just working on stuff it's like the best way to do it too just to be like a geek on your own on your uh-huh. on an island because then you know like you're not trying to like follow any trend you're just super into you know this one thing and it's, it's sometimes it's lonely out there because you're like, no one understands what I'm doing right now. Uh, and that's okay. But now now that I've been you know making chip music for like seven years, there was a while where I was like, no one will care about this. And now I've been, I guess, through any real metric, like pretty successful with it. Yeah. You know, you've been fortunate enough to find like the community that cares about this stuff and is passionate. And it also helps that you're putting out content that's good. Yeah, and uh, honestly, I didn't know that that community existed, and it's worldwide, too, of people that make that sort of music. So my first show, I, after I played my first show, I had offers to play in Philadelphia and New York and Rochester, like, immediately, because I happened to play for just the right people. I didn't know that there was, like, these showcases going on in different cities. It was all super DIY, and... It turns out traveling with Game Boys is really easy. There's not a lot of equipment involved. <laughs> yeah. So for anybody that doesn't know, I should mention that you do still play guitar live on top of the Game true. Boys, which is like an extra element that isn't like unique to you specifically. I know there are probably other artists that yep. do it, but it is something that does set you apart still. Because you also have like a a very melodic approach to your guitar playing on top of chiptune stuff because i've seen people that you know just do simple riffs on top of chiptune stuff and it's still cool oh for sure but you're very much more it's a show 
like, watch me fucking play this guitar. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. No, no. In fact, <laughs> uh, so I've written a lot of songs uh, that I don't play live very much um, because maybe they didn't translate as well or maybe they're not as interesting to watch me play because I might just be strumming chords for the yeah, whole yeah, song yeah, yeah, or yeah. something. So there's definitely a preference towards the show, the songs live that have like a little bit more shredding or more impressive looking things going on. If I'm honest with it's myself, a, it's a show. Oh yeah. You're putting, you got to entertain. Exactly. So, uh, there's a bias towards that a little bit. It's not just all, this is the best melody that I've ever written. Like, Oh, this, this song has me doing sweep arpeggios in it. So, well, that's a, well so I mean like kind of like leaning towards like the, the visual aesthetic of being a solo performer. Right. I mean, you got to give people something to watch. Well, when I originally started this, it wasn't a thing that was meant to be a like serious project. It was just a kind of a one-off little side project. And the way I justified it to myself is I was like, you know, I can do as many guitar solos as I want and no one can tell me no. And it, I almost saw it as originally as like almost writing backing tracks that I could do sort of improv guitar over. Yeah. And uh, I'm just a very structured person and it ended up sort of evolving way past that. Um, but originally it was going to be me creating backing tracks for me to just like noodle on guitar, which wouldn't have been nearly as provocative, but uh -huh. that was the original justification for it. Did you find that the writing the Danimal Cannon music uh, pushed you forward as like a musician in general but also in terms of like recording and engineering and things like that do you self produce i'm imagining you probably self-produce most of your stuff yeah uh i had actually been practicing production um since about 2003 and mm -hmm. so i have a pretty pretty healthy background in that um when i would cover video game music this is going back to like 2003 2004 uh, I built up my chops by entering these monthly competitions, which still go on, by the way. In fact, they, MAGFest is like a big part of that, uh, that particular competition. It's called the Dwelling of Duels. And once a month, they'd pick a topic, and the topic would re relate to a type of video game or a composer. And you'd have a month to do a remix from that game or that series or whatever, and everything would be anonymous. And we'd, everyone would judge each other. We'd get into a chat room. And then we'd all play the tracks at the same time and critique each other in live, in real time as the tracks are playing. And people's production, they would eviscerate you. <laughs> like, it was so, so disheartening. And so I spent all this time, like, I have to make my snare sound good. My guitar has to sound good. Because otherwise, people aren't going to listen to the notes I'm playing. They're going to pay attention to be like, well, your guitar tone sucks or your mix sucks, or your low end is out of control or something. Yeah. And they were just, they were so brutal. And in a way that you could only do anonymously. You know, even though everyone's friends, like, because it was anonymous, you would say whatever you felt. Yeah. And then afterwards, you'd find out who did what, and you'd vote for the best track or something. But uh, I did that month after month for uh, a couple years, and I built up my recording chops. And so I got pretty good at it. That was like my driving force was like, I want to have good production. Mm -hmm. And the tools actually got really good too. Like amp simulators got really good. Some of the uh, VSTs that are like pretty commonplace now, like they were really just emerging around that time. Yeah. Like especially drum samples. Like now, you know, we've got 
uh, 10 different amazing sample libraries for, for drums, for resampling. But back, you know, when I started, there was the drum kit from hell, which I think turned into superior drummer uh-huh. at some point. And that was pretty much it. And they weren't that good of samples and they weren't uh, like, I didn't have the software hooked up well enough to like have it automatically pick the dynamic multi-samples. So I had the individual one shots that I was picking out like, oh yeah, I have 11 different snare samples and I'm going to alternate them in variation of loudness. Uh-huh. It was it was a nightmare, but it worked. And I got to practice um, mixing for years and just with huge amounts of critique and I got good at production. And so when I went to go start doing the Danimal Cannon stuff, I had a really healthy background in music production. I had already self-produced um, two Arm Cannon albums. I had m- mastered a Metro Metal album. I had done dozens of tracks. So. Yeah. Now, with the other bands that you are currently still in, you know, uh, what is, like, I guess, like, a main focus for you now because so you said that like, the Danimal Cannon stuff was originally supposed to be like a side thing and now it's become right. like a thing thing you know In, it seems like you do a lot more with that stuff than the other things but maybe it's just because it's easier because it's just you my collaborative projects and bands uh, they're not monetarily focused which is good we have fun I mean sometimes we make some money and that's yeah. fine but all the other members have like day jobs and families, some of them. And you're doing full-time musician stuff. Right, right. right. Yeah. Oh, very recently. And yeah. so with the Danimal Cannon stuff, when I started to make money with that project and getting hired for like, you know, doing composing work, it was like, oh, that money's mine. It's not going into like some nebulous band fund. And because like I'd, I'd have this band fund with that I would never touch that money. I didn't even think it was mine. It was like ours or something. Yeah. And we'd use it to buy beer and you know, hotel rooms if we needed it or something like that, or if we needed to order new CDs, but it, it was never income. Yeah. And then when I started working solo, it's sort of like, oh, this is like income. This is my money. Um, and it definitely made me focus more on that. Uh, because, you know, when you're taking home a paycheck, kind of, for lack of a better way to put it, like you're going to put your priority into that. Mm-hmm. And, when you're collaborating with other people, like you are limited in that you're waiting around for other people to get things done. You know, sometimes people can't do things or they can't travel the way that you would like to do. And honestly, traveling solo is just so much easier because you're not weighted down by other people. Yeah. That's, I mean, I'm in a very similar position because I do solo stuff and then I also am in Grey Walker. And it's interesting. I do feel that, but. You know, my complication with what I do solo is I feel like it's it's hip-hop at its core. And it's just such a harder market to break into. Uh, I don't know. Because there's just so much of it. Right. You know what I mean? Like, you think of, like, how many people there are that probably make chiptune music. And there's a lot. Right. But think of how many people <laughs> idiots are doing hip-hop. And it's just like, Jesus Christ. A lot of people... That think they're rappers, myself included. But, you know, uh, I like to think that I have some sort of a advantage because I, you know, I self-produce and write all my own music and record everything and do all my own art and video. I do all this stuff, but nobody pays attention to that stuff. People are just like, oh, you're a rapper, so you just right. rap. 
So <laughs> like, you're kind of you... like me, though. You, you seem like you like being in the driver's seat. Totally. Like, I can't do some stuff. I can't. I'm not a good artist. And it's, I wish I was. I wish it would save me so much time and money if I was a good artist. <laughs> but sometimes I have to, like, crap out, like, this flyer or something that just... Like I cringe at because I know I I know it's not good, but I also am not a good artist, and it takes me ten times longer to do stuff. But everything else, you know, I find myself doing web design. I find myself uh, negotiating contracts. I find myself doing audio production, video production. Mm-hmm. You know, I I've had to study lighting. I've had to read up international law when trying to figure yeah. out if I can get into countries or not, and like. <laughs> But I do like being in the driver's seat. I don't like waiting for other people to get things done. Yeah, no, it's and, horrible. And it's it's awesome when other people can like, you can collaborate with them and all the cylinders are firing and you're working in the synergy. And so often though, that doesn't happen where somebody's kind of holding you back or you're waiting to hear back from somebody and it's like, just do it yourself. Totally. And I have no problem blaming me when I fuck up. Like, mm-hmm. that's fine. I can be like, yeah, you fucked up. But when I, I just get angry when it's somebody else that fucks up and lets me down. Like, I'm okay with letting myself down. It's also a bummer when those people that let you down are, like, your really good friends. So you feel oh, yeah. bad about, like, tearing into your homie. Oh, about for sure. Some shit. And being critical, because sometimes you do have to be critical. Uh-huh. And it's like, oh, no, this is a friendship, too. It's complicated. So it's just so much easier doing things yourself. With everything that you're doing now, do you, I guess, maybe you might have the time now that you're doing a full-time musician thing. But prior to that, did you find yourself having a hard time to actually just create art or just make music? Yeah. Versus, because like you get, I imagine you probably just get caught up in promoting and booking and organizing things to a point where it's like, I don't even have time to make music anymore. And that's what I want to do the most. Absolutely. And that's part of the reason I had to sort of leave my job was uh, I released uh, Lunaria in... January of uh, no, I'm sorry, it was March of 2016 and I or was it 2015? I, don't, I think it's 2016 and it had been I don't know, October of 2017 and it was about a year and a half later I had written maybe five minutes of material in that year and a half That's rough. It's Is- crazy I mean, I had, ri- I had done a couple things for contract work, but like in terms of like, oh, hey, maybe I should work on a new album. Like, other than sketching out a couple riffs here and there that were stored on my phone, like, I hadn't done anything. Yeah. Because I was just so overwhelmed with, you know, everything in life. Um, in a di- traveling and playing shows totally. and booking and doing all the online promotion stuff. I'm just finishing up the album that I was working on when we were on tour with Bethlehem. Yeah, so that Remember, was, what, I was like, two work, years ago. I was in the van, like, working on shit, and, uh, yeah, I'm just wrapping it up now just because of constant sidesteps and right. distractions and people and honestly, in life. It's, it's not even just hours in the day. Like, yes, there are hours in the day, but, like, in order to really do things the way you want, like, sometimes you don't have the energy. Like, I'd come home from work, and I'd be exhausted. I literally couldn't do anything but just lay there and recover mm-hmm. until the next day. Like, I couldn't come home and just work on stuff. Um, so, like, what do you do then outside of music as a break, as a, as a distraction? From I play this way world? too much Rocket League. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I do that. So, like, you're still kind of like in, 
but it's still like a work environment in a way because it's video games and kind of related. And I imagine you probably play with people that are in the community that you know. Oh yeah, I play with. Uh, yeah, like I play with band members of mine. Yeah. I play with. <laughs> so you know, like I play with never... the drummer from the Proto Men. Yeah. Um, I uh, I even play with some of the guys who work for Psionics that make that game. <laughs> Um, who are in Kirby's Dream Band and are totally here now. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I I almost got a track in the game. They uh, they hit me up uh, for this release they were doing, and they they ended up not using the track. Uh, bummer. Yeah, right. But uh, I, I was like, yo, I gotta get a track in Rocket League. Like, that'd be fucking awesome. It would be amazing. I mean, you've gotten tracks in other games. I have. Uh, they're mostly games people don't like. Um, or care about, um, which is fine. They still kind of pay the bills and, yeah. you know, like the contract's a contract. It's a start. It like builds some sort of a resume or like a oh, for sure. street like, cred or Now I've got like whatever. a demo reel. Um, a lot of times when you look up stuff online, because I remember the first time somebody had messaged me and they're like, what's your rate for composing? And I was like, fuck. That's a weird question. I don't know. Right? And so you Google, you know, like, how much should I charge for composing music? Like, you know, <laughs> uh, and you go and look up some stuff and generally there's like a starting rate and then there's, um, it goes up depending on how many titles have you composed for that have been shipped. Cause there's plenty of projects that get canceled or oh, fair enough. Yeah. To, so usually then that's the basis that people use is how many shipped titles have you worked on? Uh, and it's really loose, you know, but it's a general guideline cause somebody had to say something. I thought it was pretty good advice, actually. Yeah. The- so now I have a few titles, you know, that have come to completion. And maybe they're not that good, but now I have, like, a demo reel of, like, of a decent variety of things and different styles. and mm-hmm. So that if somebody is like, hey, do you have examples of your work? You know, I, I can link them to that and not just an album that I did eight years ago or totally. something. It's so weird putting a value on your art when starting oh, sure. out. Because I do a lot of freelance design work for businesses and things like that and it used to be so weird and definitely like undercharged for a long time but i find like now i just anytime i get a new client i like charge a little bit more than i have charged in the past and just try to get away with it just build it build up the amount of money i'm able to make i still think i'm could probably make a lot more money but it gets really complicated um i was like hugely undercharged for this one project with pokemon they wanted to license some music from me, and they called me on the phone, which was like, like I got this yeah, email. Yeah, remember you from, telling me about? Yeah, this. I got this yeah. email from Pokemon. They're like, "Can we call you?" And I was like, "What?" <laughs> and I was literally on my way to work, like talking to Pokemon on the phone, and they're like, "Yeah, I love the idea that just Pokemon is yeah, like no. one person." <laughs> well, first off, first off, the name of the company is called the Pokemon Company, which sounds fake as hell. Yeah. like it turns out that's what it's called. But, like, when I got the emails, like, the Pokemon company, <laughs> really? That's not real. That's fake as fuck. Um, and then I looked it up, and I was like, oh, that's what they're called. All right. Yeah. yeah well, how, how creative. Um, <laughs> anyways, so. We figured when they found yeah. it, who the fuck cared? Yeah, so Mr. Pokemon <laughs> called me on the phone and was like, yeah, how much would it cost for this? And, like, you know, I couldn't, like, look up stuff. I'm, like, driving. And... For a similar project, because uh, I, I have been approached by a lot of, like, indie or random people, you know, like, hey, can we use, you know, this tune in, like, a YouTube video or something like that? I charged them, like, triple what I would charge somebody else. Well, that ended up being way too low, even. Okay. So, when it came, the contract came back, 
to me. They had doubled the amount that I had asked for. They're like, yeah, we threw in a little extra. And I was like, man, I fucked up. Like, but it was just for a YouTube video of theirs. It wasn't even like a commercial or a monetized product. Um, so I didn't think, you know, oh, I got to milk the, the Pokemon company for uh-huh. thousands of dollars. So they ended up paying me really well. And it's actually kind of a really nice story in that they were like, we want to give you more than you know what you asked for, which nobody on the planet does. Yeah, that uh, happened to me once with a freelance video job. And they ended up giving me like double what I had asked for. Because they're like, are you serious? That's all you want? And I was like, well, that's okay. Yeah. And then that actually helped me because now I feel like I can charge at least that, if not more, right. moving forward with other jobs. So I get asked all the time by a lot of composers like, oh, what do I charge for this? What do I charge for that? And the way that I do it is I have like a sliding scale. Um, like I have a vague amount, but it depends on the project. depends on what like, is it, uh, medium that I'm super comfortable in or am I going to have to like learn a whole thing? Because sometimes people want things that like, hey, I don't know how to do that. Fair enough. I have to teach myself how to do that. It's like they uh, they come to you for something that you're not even specifically known for doing. So it's like, why would oh. you ask me? But I want the money, so let's figure this out. Oh, yeah. Like I'm doing a Super <laughs> Nintendo soundtrack and like okay. I had actually done one Super Nintendo track ever and they had found it. Um and it was years ago I did it, and I didn't have like any of the setup or anything to so do. So it, it's just a different software. It's like basically a different language with composing in that. Um, uh, the Game Boy is you. It's like a chip with square waves and yeah. and stuff like that. Uh, the Super NES is all sample based. Oh, okay. And there's like weird qualities to the samples. I had to like do some research to it. So, uh, research to it, research on it. And we know what you mean. It's yeah, yeah, nailed it. <laughs> no, I did do some research, like the the really low bit small samples, the the loop point on those uh, are really difficult to do in the old software. So a lot of the samples had like these audible loop points Ugh. to them. Yeah, oh yeah, they're disgusting. And um, I I found out that the Super NES had this onboard uh, reverb delay function on it, and people <laughs> used it on like every every song. It actually sounded good. So they could dress up their crappily looped samples with this oh, like, yeah, little yeah. bit of delay. And that sound is actually shockingly iconic. I didn't know until I saw an example where they turned it off on certain tracks, like uh, tracks that I knew like from like Mega Man X and stuff. Okay. And they're like, yeah, this is what it sounds like without it. And you're like, oh, that kind of, that doesn't sound right. Like it sounds wrong. Uh-huh. So uh, I found this software that it lets you take Nintendo ROMs and it rips the samples that they used and then it emulates... The uh, onboard, um, the onboard DSP effects that they had, like that delay. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, and uh, it took some research, and it's a Japanese freeware plugin, so none of the documentation's in English, and uh, well, all the knobs. You're like, I don't know what this does, and I can't look up what it does. <laughs> so let's just let's just see what it does. Oh, I don't hear anything, so maybe it does nothing. I uh-huh. don't know. Or maybe it just doesn't do anything in this like frequency range that yeah, I'm working in right now. Right, of course. And so <laughs> there, it, I, I eventually got it. But so that's one example of like stepping outside. But a lot of times uh, people will contact me to work on like their passion project or something like that they're doing for fun. Um, uh, and like and you know they, they don't, don't necessarily they, have like a budget. Yeah, or, you try to suss out their budget a little bit. You yeah. know, but there's always that like game of chicken who, who throws out the first number uh-huh. you know because you're like hey I want the work but I don't want to scare off the client with like some crazy high number or something and 
it's also proportional to how much work do you have going on and things like that. But if somebody's like an indie developer and you don't think it's going to be a giant project, you know, we don't charge that much. The other big thing is I try to keep the rights to my own music so I can sell it later. Like and no so, matter what it is. Um, sometimes, like uh, that Super Nintendo soundtrack, you know, I, I asked them, and I don't even know if I should be talking about this, but who cares? Um, I was like, here's two numbers. Here's two rates. Here's a high rate, you know, if you keep the rights to everything. Ah. If I, here's a much lower rate, if I can keep mutual rights with you and I can sell this music after this comes out. Yeah, like and, if the game does well. I and if the game does well, I have an album. Manufacture the that, soundtrack. That yeah. I can sell, it shows. and or, Totally, yeah. Or that I makes so much online. sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so... It's sort of like almost like getting residuals. Yeah. You know, instead of doing some music for hire and not owning any of it and just sort of like, oh, that's it. So uh, that's one thing I've been doing. There's actually been a giant, awful copyright case that's been going on with this uh, game composer recently. And I think a lot of companies are going to be much stricter contract wise with that sort of stuff, which okay. is unfortunate. Um, there was a composer who sued a company even though they had like full contracts and they had to redo entire soundtracks like they had to redo the entire soundtrack to uh, the new river city ransom game um even though it had been out for like six months and they had to pull a game from like steam huh and redo the whole soundtrack from scratch even though the person that worked on it like only that person with a lawsuit only did like two tracks from it what was the lawsuit about do you know like I think, or is it just complicated? I think that there were some um, like bipolar manic episode issues. Oh, okay. I don't know the details, so like I, fair I don't enough, really want to talk about it that yeah, much because yeah, yeah. uh, I'm not an expert and I don't know yeah. uh, the full story. But that I know what the result was, and I do know that like when people are negotiating contracts, they're going to probably be a lot stricter. Fair enough. So I'm a little. A little scared about that, but we'll, we'll see. It's good at least that you're tuned into it and you can just keep yeah. your eye on things. And No, and it sucks because it involves friends too. Fair, yeah. Yeah, so. It's, yeah, I think that's part of being a independent artist or just business person in general. You know, you got to go with the flow and yeah. just make sure you're always educated on what's going on. There's always going to be some... Man, I didn't Bullshit. expect this you to turn into biz talk. That's I that's typically how my show Oh yeah, goes. you do the biz talk? I do the biz talk with a, right. with a sprinkled with like dick jokes. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Dicks and biz. It's like, oh, that's the thing in my brain. That's all I always think about is just dicks and business. Right, right. And business is good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, fuck. Um so we can uh lighten up the conversation real quick and then we'll probably put a cap in this cuz we're getting to about the point. All right. That we're going to cut this off so lightening things up so i was gonna ask you about what you do this actually is still business talk <laughs> <laughs> whatever lay it on me i was going to ask about um just it's more or less just like merchandising and how that's merchandising, merchandising and uh branding yourself as a just a human being so it's so weird because as a solo artist, sometimes it, like unless you have some like big gimmick or something, it's hard to brand yourself. Because like me and you, we're just dudes, right? That make music. 
So how oh, do you yeah, make yeah. people like, give a fuck about you as a brand to buy like a t-shirt that has your name on it or something like that? Well, one, musically, you got to kill it. Yeah. Like, that's number one. Uh, but I'm lucky that I'm I'm a bald guy and like all bald guys are interchangeable, I found out. Um <laughs> So I can simultaneously be John Luke Picard, uh, Saitama <laughs> from One Punch Man, uh, John McClane from Die Hard, and it, any any bald white man. It yeah. turns out I'm I can just stand in for that. Um, so uh, I don't particularly play music like Joe Satriani at all. But if I had a nickel for every time that someone called me Joe Satriani, um, I would actually have a significant amount of money, uh, <laughs> and I. I don't even like Joe Satriani that much. I think yeah. he's pro- he's good. He's great. I just I don't like him. Yeah, you know, I never got much into his music either. Uh, I don't know. I never really got into much of any sort of like solo guitar guys. Maybe some Buckethead when I was a little bit younger. But I, like it's impossible to keep up with his catalog of music because right. he puts out an album every day. Uh, so that helps a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, I I don't know if I'm necessarily playing that up on my t-shirts. Um, you know what goes crazy far? Good art. Totally. I throw so much. I have no problem putting money into sick art. Like, uh, all of my album covers, not to like think they're like amazing, but I think I have some good art on them, and they're like these showpieces that people see, and like, oh, I'm going to take this a little bit more seriously because this art is literally the first impression that they're going to see from it. Like, uh, I played with this band Galactic Empire and they do uh, Star Wars covers and they're awesome. And uh, their guitar player came up to me before the show and he immediately saw the vinyl I have for my latest album, Lunaria. And he was like, what is this? Like, I think I need this and I don't even know what you do. And it's because, you know, I had this, this really awesome Final Fantasy sort of inspired cover. Yeah. And, you know, the especially on the vinyl, you get that giant cover art. Uh-huh. And like... That's that first impression where, like, you get really good art and people uh, will take you seriously or at least give you a a chance, a first impression, you know? You just brought up a really good point, and I was going to say this, but you already kind of said it. And I think that the key to good merchandising as a band is to make shit that people would want to buy, even if they don't know who the fuck your band is. Oh, yeah. And the other thing is, I uh, I have a lot of band T-shirts. You know, a lot of times people give me shirts or I buy shirts, uh, and I have too many of them. And there's a bunch that I don't wear that many that much anymore. The ones I do wear all the time, fifty fifty poly cotton. They are so comfy. They like they <laughs> I fit see where my this is form going. Yeah. like really well, and they're just m- more enjoyable shirts to wear. And I was like, yo, what? what is this made out of? You know, I literally had a shirt that my friend made and I was like, what is this shirt made out of? Mm -hmm. Because I wear it twice as often because it's that much more comfortable and people don't even mind paying a premium for a more expensive shirt that's like better made. Yeah, because it costs more money to make manufacture them. Yeah, so if you have, you know, the money to sort of make shirts that, you know, cost a little bit more, you got to have more upfront capital to do that. But like, make comfy shirts that people want to buy and with good art, and they're soft, and people will make products that people want. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have the crappiest Gildan shirts that you know cost two dollars a piece or something, and you charge eight dollars for it, that's fine. But people might not wear them as often. Totally. Yeah. All and right. then um, selling music in physical formats. Let's end on that. Oof. Because you put out 
your last album, The Lunaria, on vinyl. Yes. And has that been doing good for you? How are CDs doing? How's physical media treating Danimal Cannon in the current digital age? You know, I'm really shocked that people still buy CDs. They still do. Uh, I don't really people know why. People buy Walker CDs too. but I don't people, know what they're doing with them. It, with psych stuff and hip-hop, I sell vinyl, but I will not sell. It's so rare for me to sell a CD. I am so shocked. You know, I sell CDs every show, and I just don't know why people are buying them. Um, I think they're just supporting me or something. Yeah. Which is great, by the way. Please keep buying CDs. <laughs> but as an objective human being who, like, has literally no use for a CD, like, if somebody gives me a CD, it's just going to go on a shelf. I, like, I always feel bad when my friends and bands try to give me CDs, and I'm like, look, like, if you can sell this... You should just sell it. I'm not saying I don't oh, want your CD. It's just going to sit on my shelf. I tell them, like, just mail me a download code or yeah. something, and I'll, I'll I'll download it, listen to it. You yeah. Know. Um, but if you give me a CD, it's literally just going to go on a shelf. Exactly. Um, unfortunately. And so I, I, I think CDs are dead. People still buy them, which is great. Um, we sell a lot of CDs at work, too, because I, I work at, uh, for a record label, and we sell a shit ton of CDs still. Maybe I'm just so not people, in key. Maybe I'm ahead of the curve or something. People buy them. I just think it really just depends on the age demographic and the the like the genre of music, the target. Like I mentioned before, like with hip-hop, I don't sell any CDs, but I don't think younger people are buying CDs. But the label that I work for, we're all like garage rock and old. Like Our demo is probably people that are like 35 and older that still somehow have a use for a CD because they're not using right. Spotify. Um, I uh, I did do vinyl. Um, I have a couple more to sell to break even, but it was so expensive making it. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I, I've got thousands locked up yeah, in vinyl. Yeah, I, I, I know. Oh, yeah. And uh, I even did it cheap because you helped me out. Yep. And so I, <laughs> I package up my own vinyl. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, uh, you, and, yeah. I helped you cut any corner I possibly could. Oh, yeah. I like <laughs> went to Kinko's, printed out my... Or it's not Kinko's anymore. It's Office FedEx. FedEx whatever. Office, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I, you know, printed out my own download codes on cardstock, went to the paper cutter, cut of myself, <laughs> you know, and then I physically insert the download codes. But in- that's back to that, like, that punk sort of DIY aesthetic oh, sure. that we were talking about at the beginning of the episode. If you're going to be working for yourself, sometimes that means you have to do these things yourself. Oh, for sure. And Anything um, to save 50 bucks here or there. People, people buy vinyl, though. Oh, and yeah. And honestly, even just as a showpiece on, like, my my merch station what do they call that birch booth yes merch mm-hmm. station merch station yeah that's the new name for that um <laughs> if anybody can get away with having a merch station it's probably you yeah so uh at the even if they don't buy it but people buy vinyl um and i don't even know if they have turntables people just buy vinyl which is great but people won't even know who I am and they will stop in their tracks and they will check out that huge album art and be like, yeah, what is this? Yeah. And like, just as a showpiece to have like good art and a big old vinyl goes a long way. It sucks because it takes up a ton of room on your merch station, but yeah. Um, and they're so heavy too. I can only bring like 10 vinyl to a show oh, or dude, something. Yeah. I fucking three albums on vinyl right now. Oh, so anytime, what are you doing? Oh anytime my God. Anytime I fucking like set up, it's just a goddamn nightmare because I just feel so, I was like, sorry. Oh, sometimes you got to like share space <laughs> with other bands. Yeah. And you're like, I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but. But then there's also that other part of me in the back of my head that's like, step your game up. Right. No, it's, <laughs> it's true. I mean, I try not to be a dick, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, you don't want to be. I but. try to be respectful because I've definitely shown up places and like, 
Oh, cool. You set up your merch through everywhere. And there's literally no space for me. The right only now. thing that nags me about people that set up merch is that when they have one t-shirt design, but they feel the need to set up like eight of them in a row, <sighs> you know, like take up a whole table with one fucking design. <laughs> My keyboard player in Armcaden actually, uh, we'd have our table at Magfest and uh, we we'd have like one t-shirt in our CDs and he would we'd get this giant table worth cuz that's what they give us in the merch yeah, area. And just fucking Oh, he would lay out like 400 <laughs> CDs in like this array. Yeah. And like, all right, whatever, man. Maybe he's just bored at the merch booth or something, uh-huh. but that's his style. Um, but that would not fly if there's other bands sharing, you know, yeah. space with us, obviously, but Uh-huh. But yeah, I I like vinyl. Um, I like the idea of a higher valuation on music. I like the idea of you put on a vinyl and you're not just like, I'm going to check out this one track. Like you put on the album. Like, so it makes the album more of a centerpiece, which I'm very much. Mm -hmm. And it sounds great by the way. Yeah. I think that's hogwash. Um, I think it's mathematically and like the physics of it is, uh, inferior in every way to digital music. (laughs) Um, however, uh, a lot of people prefer the way that vinyl was mastered, which is much less aggressively. Uh-huh. So that's fair. There's something to that. But the actual physical medium of vinyl is inferior in every single way to digital music. Um, uh, sorry, I'm just an asshole. No, that's it's totally fine. I think that, you know, if you have... So I have a really good turntable setup. I have great speakers and a great preamp and a very nice turntable. But I'll tell you what. If I plug an aux cable into the same setup and play it through the speakers, it's going to sound just as great. There's no oh, difference sure. in the music. But there but is the there is the mechanical like charm to it. Oh, absolutely. For sure. And it turns um, music listening into a, a, like this ritualistic thing. Like you got to set stuff up, and, you and gotta... there's definitely some circumstances with some older albums. Like we'll say, like Fleetwood Mac rumors. Okay. Like, an original pressing of that versus like some remastered new version where it's like, it's almost like the fucking original star Wars. It's like, you can't get the original mix anymore. Right. You know what I mean? So if you want to hear what this album wasn't intended to sound like, you got to get the old pressing of it or an old cassette tape. Cause a lot of the times these older albums, as they've been remastered, they just sometimes sound different, you know, or sometimes they like, they post like, to fix so much stuff that just sounds like a modern product, like modern production of an album that's forty years old, and that's can be weird. Some people might think it's better. Some people might prefer the uh, old stuff. We all fear change. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know, man. But I I agree with you. I don't necessarily think vinyl's the best sounding thing in the world. It's just I think it's an awesome provocative product. Um, to uh, like. I think it's interesting. I think it sounds original. I, I like a lot of things about it. Um, the physics of vinyl are wacky. Uh, the fact that it degrades literally physically every single time you play uh-huh. it is interesting. Um, I guess I degrade every single day that I exist <laughs> yeah, on this planet. There's something very organic about yeah, it, for yeah. sure. And uh, before, you know, what well, we had mentioned branding and uh, songwriting, and you had said about like well first off you have to rip like your music has to be good oh yeah and i think that there's a lot of i think about this a lot with people that are like oh like selling music is getting harder and things like that but you know you're having an like an okay time selling your product right and i think it also goes back to it's not so much that selling music's getting 
harder. It's just that a lot of people are putting out bullshit and they don't want to admit that they're putting out bullshit. So they blame the industry versus blaming the fact that their art's not really valuable. Oh, for sure. Like it's, uh, it's local bands complaining about their scene. Yeah. Which is fine. You know, every scene is sucked, you know, forever. Like venues suck. Promoters suck. That's great. Like you can, you can blame everyone else under the sun. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. Just step up your game. Like, I don't complain about the local scene. I don't even exist in the local scene. You know, it's kind of funny when I see some of that drama going down where it's like, yo, I just find shows other places. And it's funny when you travel, people take what you do much more seriously. I actually don't even like playing shows in Buffalo because, like, I turn into a local band. Yeah, um, we, with with Grey Walker, we have, like, really, like, dialed back uh, what we do locally. And if we do anything locally, it's usually, like, playing with like black dahlia murder or some bullshit like that like right. you know the bigger shows um but uh and yeah. i'm biased too i can travel easily yeah and so it's not so easy for other bands to do that so i didn't mean to talk shit like that but no know. no no it's everybody has to start somewhere but i think uh eventually you know if you give enough of a fuck and you really care you gotta take the next step oh yeah step your game up as we've said like a thousand times like we're hip and cutting edge with our lingo. Yeah. Step your game up. And to be honest, like the chiptune thing, like, oh, I fell ass backwards into an international scene that books people, you know, in different countries. Like, so I guess I did sort of reap the rewards of, you know, a nice, healthy, active scene without yeah. knowing it. You know, there wasn't one going on locally um, in any of this. The Rochester was the closest one to me where there was people actually putting on shows. So I literally didn't play shows in Buffalo for like two years um, with that because I didn't fit in with anything. Yeah, also my one experience playing a show in Buffalo, New York recently wasn't the most healthiest with... Uh, yeah, maybe our scene <laughs> does suck. <laughs> you were there. Yeah, I was there. That sound guy's a peach. Oh, he's a... <laughs> Fuck that guy. We're playing there again in uh, March. Really? I'll be yeah. there. Yeah, we're, we're, we'll be back. We haven't announced it yet, but we are coming back. All right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, MAGFest, you got any big plans for the day? I'm going to get loaded. Nice. Yeah, I'm going to watch a bunch of acts like a bunch of my friends are playing. Cool. Um, so I think Amanda LaPree is playing at four. She, like, plays in Andrew WK's band now, which is yeah, insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, there's a bunch of people at MAGFest where you're like, oh, that person's a giant deal out of nowhere. Um which is amazing. I'm not so surprised just because there's so much talent roaming around that like literally anyone I could pick out of a hat like, oh, this person can be su successful and you can be successful. Just Oprah style. <laughs> you get a car. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck, man. Well, yo, thanks for doing this. Cheers. Glad we had to talk. Talk some biz. Right. Shoot the shit a bit. Yeah, I'm sure people want to hear music biz stuff. I mean, Maybe they do. I mean, this is, I've been doing this for almost 200 episodes at this point. Oh, damn. Yeah. So, and you know, we got it. We got a steady following, so I think people like it. So I just kind of, just kind of keep going with the format. Yeah. Sounds like you're killing it. A lot of people have a hard time figuring this shit out, so sometimes it's helpful. Hell yeah. Because it's not easy. You know, we you, struggled too, man. Yeah. Do we you struggled. edit these? Um, sometimes. Okay. I'll touch it up a bit. You know. Oh, okay. Good. If somebody is in the background farts, I might have to cut it out. <laughs> or emphasize it with a compressor. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, you know, I just go through it. Okay. Sometimes, you know, I if it felt like it was an awkward talk, I might have to like 
polish it, but this went pretty good, so should be fine. You damn right it went good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, and uh, that's all, folks. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. One more time, Danimal Cannon. Thanks for stopping by our hotel room. Thank you. And uh, where can people find your music? I don't know, on the internet. Just type it into that box with the words. Just type in Danimal Cannon. Yeah, you have albums on Spotify and stuff. Yeah, I'm on all the things. And the YouTube. Yeah, I'm not hard to find on the internet. I got my Google search recognition like pretty good. Boom. Yeah. That is a thing, by the way. Choose a band name that isn't already a thing. Like, even if it's nonsense, just make it easy to spell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Faux show. And then, you know, you know where to find me, obviously, because you're already here. But uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, preferably Instagram, because I don't really use the other things that much. All at The Real Sykes, or just go to therealsykes.com and look up some stuff. I'm doing a lot of things. And I'll be back next week with another new episode. Same time, same place, same channel. You know the drill. What do you want to say? Um, do you ever use the catchphrase, get psyched? <laughs> <laughs> No, I've never heard that before. <laughs> no, that's all. Psyched to see Sykes this weekend. I'm like, oh. Oh, so you cool. have heard that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I thought I was really clever for a yeah, second. Yeah, no. I, <laughs> that's I'm, a shame. I'm in a position now where uh, I've like dug a hole so deep that like I would love to change my name, but it's just... This is your Joe Satriani. Yeah, I'm okay. stuck, but... As we were chatting up the last time I saw you when we had lunch at that diner uh, with the band, because I have the Sykes and I have the full band with Sykes, and I'm going to release the album I've been working on under a band name versus just Sykes. Oh, you're like, we're rebranding. name now. We're uh, rebranding. That's the worst idea. Rebranding You think, you think is rebranding's terrible. a terrible idea? Yeah, you should just be like, I'm Sykes. Sorry, you got to own it. Sorry. Yeah. Because you got to start from scratch again, and I'm Not lazy. Not necessarily. I mean, no, you, I know. I think that... Uh, if I get into this now, it's going to be another 20 minutes. Know, so we're just going to snap this. We're done. I'll be back again next week with another new episode. Same time, same place, same channel. You know the drill. My name is Sykes. Maybe. Start the beat. <laughs> 2018. Woo! Woo! Yo, you're good at those. Thanks for listening. Peace. <laughs>